if Jesus has come, if he's been incarnate in flesh um, for us and in life, what, now what uh, does it have to do with us? And we've discussed that under several categories. One is uh, that this uh, incarnation was the desire of God. This is not in your outlines. I'm just doing a little review. The desire of God, the desire of the de deity. And then this now what means that how is the disturbance that has been with human beings with God? And what we've been kind of working around here is this. And if you'll turn to your Bibles, go to your table of contents there and find the book of Colossians. This has sort of been our kind of anchor verse, if you will, in Colossians uh, 11.24 in my Bible. Go to the second chapter and uh, just this, uh, this idea or this notion uh, in chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 1, uh, <clears throat> where Paul is uh, re referring the, this church to what God has done in the incarnation, what, what God has accomplished. And he says uh, that we would be strengthened, verse 11, that we'd be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might and attaining his steadfastness with patience and joy. I like this in verse 12. We're going to look at the, the contrast here in 12 and 13. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Notice verse 13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom, which would be the kingdom of light of his dear son. And part of the incarnation is to bring light, uh, the light of the world. We, we, we talk of Jesus like that in, at Christmas, but, but this understanding of that the incarnation now what has brought us into the kingdom of light. And I made this uh, observation a few weeks ago. We've, we've still been working on it. Is if we get the light uh, shined on us, what do we see? And I would suggest to you because of Jesus Christ, there are several things that we see more clearly, that we see more accurately, that probably would never occur to us or come to our minds. And we begin to see it clearly. And so we've kind of dug down, thanks to Terry Chapman, kind of leading us in some areas of the names of God. Uh, I've been kind of working us through the character of God, or what is he like? I, I, th I find it fascinating. Uh, we, we're deal we're, I'm going to try to get through today, finish. Uh, spring break is this week, and no laughing. <laughs> um, I don't know if you know it or not, but uh, a couple of years, well, back in 2010, um, I said this to Becky just recently. I said, uh, when I was doing my work on this idea about when we see God, what do we see more clearly? That was over 30 years ago. <clears throat> Some of the things I teach... And my classes at Mid-America are the things I taught in a new Christian's class when I was a pastor. Me and a buddy of mine, we decided that if we were going to help people grow spiritually, the first thing we had to deal with is the nature of God. What is this God like? And so we worked on that. And I find it fascinating. I'm not claiming any inspiration here necessarily. Um, but uh, uh, I find it interesting that when in 2010, when Baylor did their study, you know, the Baptists are always trying to tell us what to do, right? You know? <laughs> Kidding, kidding, Baptist people, kidding. When Baylor did their study, they discovered that in their study that people see God in basically four different ways. Four different ways. Now, this is related to this thing on your outline. Now what? That what comes in our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's how we relate to him or not. It's how we think reality is, is, is structured. Uh, or not. And when Baylor got their study done in 2010, they discovered that there were four basic ways people see God. Uh, they are this, authoritative, 
distant, benevolent, or if you're like me from Texas spelling, caring. <laughs> when I get close to a board, I can't spell. I got, I got after a student the other day, because when I get up here, I can't spell unless I'm writing Greek, because I have to think. So I'm writing up here one day, and I say, ah, when I get close to a board, I can't spell. A student blurted out in class, yeah, when I get close to a paper I'm writing, I can't spell either. <laughs> I said, you're getting extra credit. <clears throat> Absolutely. Yeah. Benevolent or caring. <laughs> the last one, critical. Critical. Now, what was fascinating to me, and I, again, I don't claim any necessary inspiration, but 30 years ago, when I was working through this material with a buddy of mine, I came up with four views of God that I think are correct. Interesting. I, I'm going to give you this because we've run over, we've discussed, we've run over something, that's right. No, we didn't just discuss it. The distant God, I think, corresponds to what we've discussed about a God who is consistent with the person of Jesus who became a man. The, the, the antidote, in other words, to the distant God is to recognize that God is consistent with the person of Jesus Christ, or that's the kind of God that he is. Look here on your outline. That, there it is. Well, here's another thought. You might want to have this. <clears throat> if you have a false idea of God, the more religious you are, the worse it is for you. You see that? If you have a false view of God, the more religious you are, the worse it is. This is where people get mean. This is where people get angry. This is where people check out a life, if you will, in some sense, I, because they can't deal with this God. And, and this is what William Temple said. It would be better for you to be an atheist. Wow. This comes from a book guy named Kenneth Leach who wrote a great book on prayer uh, years ago. That, that if you have a false view of God, the more religious you are, the worse it is for you. I think I could testify to that. Have you met people that have grown up in just terribly legalistic or in terribly uh, authoritative kind of religious experiences and at some point they just get fed up and leave, right? Happens all the time. Happens all the time because when we get an incorrect view of him, there's something in us called mental health <laughs> that resists these bizarre or caricatures that we've picked up through life. There's something called mental health. Instead of just succumbing to some monster, if you will, that we've kind of constructed in our brain, it's called mental health. And so William Temple is the archbishop, if you will, of uh, Canterbury. So um, what I'm proposing here is this, proposing more biblically informed brands of God, proposing uh, more biblically informed brands of God. And on your outline there, you'll notice uh, the first one is a God is consistent with the person of Jesus Christ. I think that corresponds to, if you want to make the connection here, Baylor's study on the distant God. Could you ever think that God is distant if he became a human being? <laughs> Could you ever think that God is distant and removed if he came and suffered and lived and experienced, as the book of Hebrews says, he's been tempted in every way as we were yet without sin? Could you ever think God's distant if he went to that length? I don't think so. And so, so this idea of a God who's consistent with the person of Jesus Christ. Now, on your island, I don't know if I got this on here. I'd do these things and then forget. Yeah, here we go. 
The issue here, I'm just trying to give you some, some, some labels here. The issue here is character. When we talk about Jesus, not distant, but like us, the issue here is what is God's character? I want to suggest that. The second thing here, we've already looked at this, is that God is consistent with a God who has your best interest at heart. A God who has your, your, your best interest at heart. The issue here is control. Do I give control to a God who I believe has my best interest at heart? And, and we discussed that. Do, do I give control? Again, mental health, if you don't think God has your best interest at heart, are you going to give control of your life to him? That's a question. <laughs> what? No, of course not. I mean, if you don't think that God has your best interest at heart, if I don't think God has my best interest at heart, if you don't think someone that you know has your best interest at heart, will you turn loose of control? Not if you have good mental health, <laughs> right? Not if you have good mental health to say, wait a minute, I don't think this person has my best interest at heart. Why would I turn the control of my life over to them? So I think this is uh, the authoritative God that Baylor studied, <clears throat> the authoritative God, the God that just basically pushes people around because he, what? Can, <laughs> right? If you're God, that goes with your, your job description, <laughs> That, that, you know, the authoritative God can push you around and you just take it because he can. And so, so we're, we're trying to, to do this. Now, I'm going to deal with two more today, I think. And, uh, and the, the third one here is number three on your outline. <clears throat> uh, you can turn it is uh, this, this one. You can just put under number three, the benevolent or caring God. This third one I've identified, I think, is corresponds to the benevolent or caring God. I'm not going to tell you what number three is yet, right? Cliffhanger. Cliffhanger. Uh, <clears throat> stop it. Anybody remember CB radios? That was my handle. Hey, you got the cliffhanger? Come on. Oh, it's terrible. I know. It's bad. <laughs> it's bad. Yeah. You talk to kids now, CB, what's that? Anyway, uh, uh, the, the third one is the benevolent God. The benevolent God, I think, according to the, to the uh, Baylor study. And the last one, number four, we'll get to that. Number four is the critical God. The critical God. I, I'm not claiming any inspiration, but I, I was just telling Becky that, that I said, it's fascinating to me that when I worked to this 30 years ago, these were the things that were rolling around in my head and heart. These were the things that drove me to seminary. These are the things that drove me to my knees to say, I don't know if I can live this life if I don't get this cleaned up. Not because I'm a bad person, because I think I have good mental health. And that's what drove me. And so I want to look at that. Now, we looked at this last week, a God who has your best interest in heart. We discussed what that uh, means in terms of what does it mean for things to go well with you. If you weren't here, you can listen to the recording. What does it mean in this section here, if you will, in, a heap, in a Deuteronomy where it says, uh, Oh, that Israel would obey me and keep all my commandments that it may go well with them. Now, the issue here is control. Are we going to trust a God? who really wants our best. And we discussed this. Uh, you can go look at uh, some of our, uh, listen to the recording. 
what does it mean for it to go well? Now, the other side of that is, the, the other side of this uh, discussion, um, so and here's on your uh, handout, I think. I don't know if I put this on here either. So what does it mean to, not, to, to go well? And what does it mean to not go well? What does it mean to not go well? You would infer that if you do what God says, it will go well with you. If you don't follow, if you don't trust that he has your best interest, how will things go? Not well, okay? What does that mean? <clears throat> not well. That, that the idea here is that things will not go well, that sin by its very nature is destructive. Sin by its very nature disintegrates. Sin by its very nature distances people from each other and God. And so we tend to work with this thing about that sin meaning things will not go well. You know, if I, I worked at a, a, a grocery store and, uh, years ago in Houston when I was in college. And I used to carry groceries out. Some of y'all remember this. I used to carry groceries to somebody named Gene Tierney. Mm. All the old people know this. No. <laughs> yeah, very famous movie star in the 30s. I don't mean that, the air temperature. I mean the years. <clears throat> she drove a pink Rolls Royce. Yeah, to the grocery store. <clears throat> yeah. And I met some, it was in the Westheimer area of Houston. I met some, some really marvelous people. And I met a family that owned a big funeral home. And I would talk as we're going out. And she, she found out I was in the ministry. And she said, we'd like to hire you. And I said, well, I don't, I don't know. I got some other things to do. But she told me a story one time that she and her husband went to Germany and did some traveling around and, and did that and, and bought a Mercedes and brought it back on a boat. They flew back, but they was got back on a boat. So when, they, when it got to the port there in New Jersey, they sent one of their employees up there to get it. <clears throat> so it was a brand new Mercedes, maybe had 2,000 miles on it. And so uh, they sent him up there, and he um, uh, gets the car and gets to driving and drives for about five or six hours, you know, until he needs to get fuel and stops and, and gets fuel. And fuels up, gets a cup of coffee, gets back in the car, drives about three blocks and the motor seizes up completely. What they had not instructed him, this was a diesel Mercedes. And he put gasoline in that engine. It did not go well. <laughs> On a couple of levels. <laughs> he was looking for work. <clears throat> What is it that when we don't follow what God says or what works, that it's not going to go well? Now, I, and, I, and I roll this out, and I, I feel bad because I didn't have enough time to really talk about it. But I, I want to tell you, I, th this idea here is this. We confuse frequency with normal or average with normal. See this? I, I took this picture. I won't tell you who it was. Have you ever seen the temperature around here being normal? Why? It's not. Because they're, mis they're, they're confusing something. Average. They take all the dates of weather on a certain day, average them and say, that's what it ought to be. That's why it never is. Because they've confused the notion, if you will, of average with normal. And here's where I've, I've made some observations, I think. That I want to, we'll come back to this, but you'll see this. I want to, I'm still trying to work this out a bit. 
that sin is not normal. Whatever and wherever it gets introduced, it brings the opposite of what God wants. And it brings the opposite of what brings life to us. And yet, it's frequent. It's common. But it's not normal. Now, I want to work on this here for a second. Look at this here. Uh, when we think about normal, we think about what brings life and vitality. This is what the dinner table looks like now. <laughs> is that normal or frequent? It's what it looks like, isn't it? You've been at the restaurants lately and see couples that are on a date or something like that. They're both on their phone. Maybe they're texting each other. I don't know. <laughs> Could be. I text Becky one day, I was in my chair, and she was on the couch, and I text her. <laughs> I'd like another donut. <laughs> Please. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that the idea here is that this has become so frequent now, people accept this as what? Normal. It's become so frequent now. It's been accepted as normal. What I'm suggesting here in is in a somewhat of a clinical level is that there's nothing normal about sin. It never creates normalcy. It creates division. It creates destruction and disintegration. The whole notion here of what is normal, of how it ought to work, how it was made to work. Ken Smith, a friend of mine, he's a physician, and he actually went to Baylor, uh, and I was talking to him one day about, you know, I'd like to have some tests for my health that don't involve needles. And he said, well, there's one that he knows of. Uh, and he said, Here's, here it is. Exercise, and this comes out of the Cleveland Clinic and the, uh, the uh, New England Journal of Medicine, that if you exercise, by the way, the thoughts and opinions of this teacher are not necessarily thoughts and opinions across the community church, it's elders or leadership, and I'm not offering medical advice. Okay, are we recording this so I can not go to jail? Uh, uh, Ken told me, he said this. Uh, if you'd like to determine if your heart is operating normally, what does that mean? No, not average. The average uh, heart disease is the number one killer in the world, in America. That's what's average, right? Normal means the heart's doing what? What's it supposed to do? Pump blood. What else? Move oxygen at a certain rate. So Ken said to me, he said, here's what the Cleveland Clinic has determined. And I'll read it to you. This, this definition is the baseline between normal and abnormal as summarized by table one. You can't see that. That's in here. Compared with student, uh, patients with a normal rate of recovery. After you exercise... For a certain amount of time and get your heart rate to your training rate, your training rate. Now, you rest one minute, and if your heart has not dropped a minimum of 12 beats, your heart has an abnormality. It's either a muscular issue or a blockage issue. Now, everybody's going to go home and start... Act, I, <laughs> just, yeah, yeah. Or... As in some cases with me, ignorance is bliss, <laughs> right? So 
the Cleveland Clinic has said a normal heart, one that's what? Operating the way it's supposed to. After that minute of exercise, 12 beats minimum drop, or there's something wrong. Why? Because that's the way a heart's supposed to operate. It's supposed to, if it's not blocked or there isn't damage, I'm happy to report to you, I'm 30. So that's what donuts do for you. <clears throat> so when sin is introduced, it never creates normalcy. I'm not saying there isn't temptation. I'm not saying there isn't a devil. I'm not saying this isn't frequent. I'm not saying we're drawn to it. I'm simply saying I think we need the correction in our mind to say this is not normal. Get ready for some disintegration in relationships. Get ready for some destruction in life. If you put stuff in your body, get ready for it. Because that comes with the deal. Okay? I'm not saying that, you can't, that a person can't sin. I am saying what John Wesley said, where he said, it's not that the Christian can't sin. The question is, do they have to sin? Uh, that's a good question. It's not that we can't. The question is, do we have to? And I'm just suggesting that we need to correct our thinking on some things. Our culture has tried to convince us that sin is normal. Our own failures at times have tried to convince us that sin is normal. Have I sinned in the last few weeks? Yeah, I have. And I, and I, I have to say to God, God, what you've got to help me here to deal with this issue, to understand that what I'm dealing with here is not normal. Now, here's where I think we, we talk about this at some point. We discuss this. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, go, go there for a second. Go back, you're in Colossians, turn left. Chapter 12, very famous passage, very famous passage, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, in other words, look at all the mercy God has given you, <clears throat> it's not I urge you or you're going to get in trouble, I urge you or you're going to be bad. I urge you, this, this Greek word here means I'm, I'm begging you. On the basis of the mercies of God to present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable God, which is your spiritual service of worship. What does that look like, Paul? And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Where, where, where does our mind need to be renewed? To say, sin is not normal. My mind's got to get a hold of this before my will and my emotions sometimes will grab it. To the transformation of the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. And sin is none of those. None of those. Now, <clears throat> don't get confused here. I, I realize some of you may be thinking, well, Clifford, are you saying you live perfect? I'm not saying that. I'm saying I'm trying to get at the issue is what is the nature of sin. I'm not saying we can't be tempted. I'm not saying we can't sin. I'm not saying God doesn't forgive. I'm not saying God is not merciful and kind. I'm trying to say we got to get our heads around this to begin this dealing of this battle spiritually. 
if you just think it's normal and it's going to bring health and vitality to you, we kind of lose the game here. I, I talk to my students at the university. I say to them, so if, if you as a team believe before you go to the game you're going to get beat, what usually happens? If we've bought into the frequency of sin and say, well, that's what it is. You know, that's what it is. Instead of the say, wait a minute, this, this may be frequent, but it's not normal. Again, please do not hear what I'm not saying. Or <laughs> That's right. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Remember Richard Nixon? I know you think you're, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you can't sin. Through our, you know, Jesus said, pray that you not enter temptation. So we get sideways or our life gets out of whack. And, and, and we, I'm not saying you can't sin. I'm not saying that God won't forgive you. I'm not saying that you can just forget this now from now on and you'll never sin again. I'm not saying that. What I am saying if this is true, that God says it'll go well with you if you'll do what I say. That you can at least approach the spiritual battle armed with the truth of God. To say, you got rocks in your head if you think I think this is normal. I got too much history with this. I got too much stuff in my life that shows me every time I do that, it's not right. So here's what I want to ask you to do. we got to hurry. It's already 1227. <clears throat> again, my doctor buddy, on a clinical standpoint, said it this way. And I think this is back, again, to my heart illustration like that. That normal is what cells should do. Abnormal is what they can do. Now, I'm, I'm a doctor, but not one of those. But, but I want to tell you that there's a big issue here. And that's this. They're really, and my wife's had breast cancer, so I'm, there's no such thing as cancer. Cancer is when good cells go haywire. Cancer is when good cells go haywire. I'm not saying children aren't born with cancer. I mean, they be born with a tumor. What I'm saying from a cellular standpoint, a structural standpoint, you don't start with cancer. You start with good cells that go haywire. Sin is something good that goes haywire. So I want to ask you to consider, what would you be willing to do this? What if we could say to ourselves that, we are, when we are being, that what we are being tempted to do is not going to bring normalcy in our lives or with the lives of others? What if you started saying that to yourself? What if you started carrying this conversation? Okay. I'm tempted. There's interest. There's desire. I'm not, I'm not discounting any of that. It might be fun for a little bit. I might enjoy it for a little bit. But I'm about to get stepping into something that's not going to bring normalcy. It's going to bring abnormalcy. I'm just saying, maybe start having that conversation with yourself to begin to approach the struggle that we face in our culture that they tell us everything other than what God has to say about these matters. That's it. So think about that. 
Number two, we're going to number three now. This is the one, a God of holy love. This one, I said, I think is the benevolent God. The benevolent God that uh, Baylor uh, identified. Uh, I was just thinking the other day when I was doing some of this, um, that I have some questions about whether we need to redefine love or understand it more fully. I'm writing a paper to myself just to clarify this. Uh, You know, uh, can you think about all the names of the songs that have been written that have the word love in them? Here's some of them. Can't buy me love. Buy? Beatles, come on, I'm going to check your rock and roll knowledge. When a man loves a woman, Percy Sledge, who got it? There you go. That's right. Dave Fackens in here, he knows them all. Here we go. Whole lot of love. Led Zeppelin. All you need is love. I'll have to say I love you in a song. I don't have this written down, but I don't. Nope. Jim Croce. Jim Croce. Croce, or I don't know. Crochet. I don't know. (laughs) Don't you love her madly? My favorite bands. Huh? The Doors. All right. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. Dusty Springfield. I just called to say I love you. Stevie Wonder. I want to know what your love is. Journey. Dave, help me. Who? Foreigner. I mean, for, I'm sorry. I'm at foreigner. Uh, Dave, Dave, correct me. Do you think... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dave is my source on this. If you ever need to know anything about rock and roll. There's no word that's ever shown up more in songs than the word love. And yet, there may be less love than ever. What does it mean? We use the term, it's, it's trivial. It, it sometimes is misused. I know people, nobody in this room, so relax. I don't think, I mean, well, maybe one. Stuart, no, not true. Have you had people... I mean, I sometimes when people I, say, I love you. Sometimes I say, is that Christian ease? Because I'll ask them this. Or I'll think this. This person doesn't spend regular time with me. This person doesn't know my fears and challenges. This person doesn't invest any energy in our relationship. And yet, people say that, don't they? It's almost like Christian ease. I think of a Seinfeld episode I better not go into here. <clears throat> is there a distinct... I, I've wondered now, I'm, I'm telling you, this is the way my little brain works. I, I've wondered, is it true when they say, I love you? Or if they say, love you? I don't know. That's a Seinfeld episode. <clears throat> you know? You, you understand what I'm saying? I mean, we use this term often... Too much. I called up a friend of mine some time ago that I've known for a while, and I just said, look, it is nuts, as good of friends as we've been, we need to spend some time together. I love you. I care about you. But I'm letting my whole schedule get wiped out. 
to spend time with each other, to know the fears and challenges. The, the, the scripture, I think, tells us that God is a God of holy love. Right there? Look here over in 1 John. Go to the right or go to your table of contents. I think this is such a necessary matter because sometimes in this Baylor study, with, with people that say God is benevolent, God is more like Santa Claus than God. I mean, remember, I, I tell my students this, uh, when your parents said, now, if you're not good, Santa Claus is not going to bring you nothing. <laughs> now, listen, I am evidence to the fact that that's not true. <laughs> okay? I was a bad kid, and I always got something from somebody. <laughs> right? So, so the, the, the kind of the idea that, that God is kind of this benevolent, benign creature that doesn't really care how things go, right? I, I remember years ago, while you're going to First John, I remember years ago at the bombing down at the Murrah building. I was going to a different church, and I was in charge of the service, and and uh, some others in here in that room. And I, and I remember somebody stood up. I mean, we just had heard one of the members of that church was in the building they were trying to find, and she died. And somebody stood up and just said, well, we just need to pray for, to forgive this person, whoever it is. And I said, stop it right now. There's a justice issue here. There's a sin issue here. And we're going to grieve over this before you start pushing us around to start forgiving. This is not some flippant thing here. Holy love. Holy love is not some flippant thing, some phony baloney, good time rock and roll. That, that this idea, look here uh, in, in 1 John, now there. This, this is what I want to show you in the, in the grammar. In, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message that we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light. God is light. Of course, that is idea ever occurred in your thinking. God is what? Love. We read that, don't we? That's in 1 John 4. But it's the same grammatical construction here. It's the same use of the verb. And at the very beginning of the book, he said, listen, here's the, here's the message we've received, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. There's no injustice. There's no sin. There's no shading of matters. God's light. Then by the time you get to chapter 4, verse, uh, you can see that on your outline, just flip over there, verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7, 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And everyone who loves God is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, I believe what theologians have asserted a long time ago, that God is love. But I think it's almost gotten to the point that love means permission. It means softness. It means weakness. It means an unwillingness to address injustice. It means a willingness to just roll over and let somebody run right through you. And here's what I'm saying. If God is light and God is love, then God is holy love. Here, let me tell you what the difference is. 
I don't know what I got on here anymore. It's a love that makes distinctions. Holy love is a love that makes distinctions. Now here's the distinction. It will tolerate. It will enjoin. It will support. It will defend what is good for you. And it will resist and oppose and stand in opposition to what's going to destroy you. It's not this weak, sentimental, hallmark card baloney. You did this for your kids. When they came down and said, I want ice cream for breakfast. And you said, whatever you want. Of course, that school teacher came and beat the living daylights out of you the next day, <laughs> sending that kid all hyped up on sugar. What'd you say to those kids? No. And then they said, I hate you. And you said, get in line. <laughs> Listen, I teach students whose parents could not operate in holy love. I teach students every day whose parents refuse to operate in holy love. The love that says no. I told you when I was a kid, we lived in San Angelo, Texas. There was a four-lane road right in front of our house. I only oh, I knew it. Beauregard Boulevard. My mother said, don't you ever get out in that street. And my little brain thought there must be a pony out there. <laughs> I'm serious. I thought, sure. Parents hate me. You know, they don't let me do what I want to do. There's evil. So my mom got on the phone one time with my Aunt Virginia, and I made my little way out there. Now, by the time I got out there, cars are going, honk, honk. My mom's on the phone. I have a vague memory of this because she, well, I won't. The statute of limitations is over, so. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And I wouldn't press charges. Well, no, nah, I don't think so. Uh, my mom is talking about Aunt Virginia, and she didn't go, oh, Virginia. Little Cliffy's out in the middle of the street. He's just having a great time. He didn't find the pony, but he's out there. Oh, you know, we just want little Cliffy to be happy. My mother dropped the phone. She had something in her hand. I never did figure out what it was. She grabbed my scrawny little four-and-a-half-year-old arm and as I recall, every word that came out of her mouth was another, I told you. And I'm like, stop talking. That's because my mom hated me. Right? Listen, a God who's benevolent is not if you will, a God who's benevolent is not dismissive. He's not saying, whatever you want to do, just go ahead. If you want to drink strychnine, go ahead. If you want to tear your life to bits, go ahead. I'll just watch. No. Holy love makes distinctions. In fact, I'd tell you this, that, that there are several times in theological uh, papers and things that... Uh, that the love of God, holy love of God, is also studied under the category of the wrath of God. 
that the wrath of God is God's holy love that will not abide what destroys you. Now, how, how, how does that work? Well, I don't think God's, you know, tearing up your washing machine or, or giving your kids cancer. It's called conscience that won't let you alone. God is saying, now, again, conscience can be yourself. It can be the echo of your past. I'm not saying conscience is infallible. But I think God's wrath at times comes when he says you feel disquieted. Maybe you need to find out. Talk to a counselor. Talk to another Christian. Say, is this something I should pay attention to, or is this just my history and background? You know, I think sometimes God's wrath is expressed in the very fact that sin has built into it punishment. I honestly, now you may think I'm a heretic. I think he will in the future, but I don't think God punishes sin. I really don't. I think sin will punish you. I don't think God's up there with a hammer trying to hit us. He, any wrath he's doing is trying to say, wake up, Cliff. God isn't punishing sin. He didn't have to. <laughs> That's why it's not normal. It's got it built in. So holy love. Now, this love that makes distinctions. Let me, let me make this statement. I don't think it's on your outline. I've got stuff up here. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Uh, yeah. Here's, what the, here's the distinction that love makes. It's not in who God loves. It's not in who God loves. It's in what God loves. God loves justice. God loves mercy. God loves faithfulness. God loves loyalty. God loves and sanctions purity. God loves and sanctions holiness. What he stands against is selfishness and injustice and the using of other people. So, because who God is, the whole life of God is a matter of love. But it's holy love. I never talk about the love of God without using the adjective holy. Now, what does holy mean? Different. Distinct. This isn't the kind of love that we just talk about in some kind of general categories. This is the kind of love that's distinct and different. I, I, I've told my students before, I, you know, I tell them this, and I think it's true. I heard a guy say this year ago. You know, there are only two people that tell you the truth to you. There's only two people that tell you. Somebody that loves you and somebody's mad at you. Those are the only two people tell you the truth. The fact is, sad part of it is, we sometimes won't tell people the truth, not because we love them, but we love ourselves too much. We can't imagine or we can't abide the idea they won't like me anymore. That's not loving them. That's not loving them. That's loving me. It's saying, wait a minute, if I say to my friend something that's a little harsh or a little difficult or he needs to deal with, he might not like me, so I'm not saying anything. This is vigorous kind of love. This kind of matter of God as love, as holy love. So you might want to consider that when I think about the love of God, it isn't just some romantic or simple, sloppy benevolence. But hold up, I've got to do a wedding this afternoon um, in McAllister. Uh, not there. Um, some of y'all get that. 
And I'm going to talk to these kids. They're a part of our school. And I'm going to talk to them. I said, I know you love each other. At least you think you do. But I want to talk to them really directly about what kind of love you got. Is it circumstantial? Is it as long as she looks good? Or is it holy love that makes the distinction of this? Agape love is the kind of love that seeks what is best for the one loved. Agape love, that's the term used, is love that seeks the best for the one loved. And you know what? That could be correction. That could be you're going down a path that's going to destroy you, and I'm not going to stand here and be silent about it. I'm not doing that. You can hate my guts, but I love you because I'm seeking what's best for you. And every parent in this room's done that. This is nothing new. We have to understand that that's the way God operates with us. He's not mad at us. He's not trying to hurt us. He's saying, this is not good for you, Cliff. I don't want you doing this, and I'm going to do what I can to stop you with your conscience or with friends. Or sometimes I think God stops us when we go ahead and do it, and we realize, whoa, this is not what I thought it was going to be. And God says, you got it. Holy love. Don't just talk about love, love, love. People don't even I don't know if they have any idea of what it means anymore. Let me tell you why this is important, and I'm going I'm to stop. We're not going to do four. I just want to make a couple of observations for you real quick. This is, this is why this is important. God is holy love. God is holy love. You think he wants us to sit around while we see injustice? You think he wants us to sit around while we see inequality? You think he wants us to sit around when we see people that are harmed? You think he wants to sit us around when, we, when we're doing things in our life and our family? No. God is holy love. Let me tell you something else, too, about this. If that's true, I want to suggest to you, let's define sin like this. Sin is disordered love. That's what Augustine said. Sin is disordered love. I'll tell you this. I think that the thing that makes human beings human beings, the image of God, all that, what makes human beings human beings and not dogs and animals and whatever is we have the ability to love. That's what makes human beings human beings. And the determination as to whether my love is directed to God and others in a holy fashion, sin is disordered love. I've used it this way. John Wesley, I think, was good on this. When he said, sin is misdirected love. Sin is misdirected. What are we, who are we supposed to love? God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. When they came to Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? That you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. So if that's the whole duty of humanity, if that's the duty of mankind, what would sin be? Not that. Misdirecting love. Another thing. You ought to look at this. And by the way, it's Mark 12, 28. The only thing that matters... Paul said in 
Galatians 5, 6. He said, neither circumcision matters nor uncircumcision, but he says this, but faith working through love. We put a lot of emphasis on faith, don't we? We should. But faith isn't the kind of faith the scriptures speak about unless it's working through what? Love. Unless faith is working through love. You can have all kinds of ideas in your head, all kinds of information that is true, orthodox. Wesley said this was his favorite verse. He said, and I believe he's right, that the reformers, Calvin and some of those guys, elevated faith to a point that it dismissed love. Think about it. In the, in, in the Reformation, there are five solas. I'm way off here now. I'm going to get this out. There are five solas. Sola gratia, only grace. Sola scriptura, only the scripture. Sola de gloria, only the glory of God. Sola uh, fide, only faith. Sola Christus, only Christ. Where's only love? These three things abide, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Where's love in the Reformation? It's nowhere in those solas. So, so the idea of the whole Christian life has to be lived in this matter of holy love, faith working through love. Now finally, and look at this later. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. I'm going to read it to you. If you need to leave, see you. No. I'm serious. You need to leave, really. I'm trying to get through. Um, holiness, and I know that word scares the living daylights out of us, but it's a good biblical word. Holiness is perfecting, not perfect, perfecting love, where, where my love is growing. My, my love is growing and maturing. I can tell you this. I, there are things now that bother me about me that are, have nothing to do with action, but have to do with where I see my heart being pulled. Those are the things that concern me now. I, I, I'm watching a movie the other day, and nothing's happened like that, but, but it's, it's, it's getting violent like that, and I can sense the Spirit of God saying to me, Cliff, this is not good for you. You can't get indifferent to people's suffering. I didn't see anything, didn't do anything. 30 years ago, I wouldn't have bothered me at all because I didn't sin. <laughs> but look at this in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians 3. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord, I love this, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and all people. Look here at verse 13, so that. You got to listen to that one. That's important. Why does God want you to increase and abound in love for others? So that he may establish your hearts without blame. What? In holiness. How does God establish your heart in holiness? By increasing our love for one another. There it is. Before our God and Father. So, so this whole notion of holy love has got to get wrapped up here. So here we go. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do this week. 
What if this week we all add the adjective holy anytime we use the word love? If you say to you, I, I love you, your kids, you know, I, I usually say to Becky, I love you. I'll say, okay, Becky, I have holy love for you. She's going to have a test tomorrow. <laughs> you say to someone, I love you. Say, what? No, listen, I love you, but I want to tell you, it's holy love. That's the kind of love I have for you. Through this week, when you use this word, correct yourself. You'll have to, and you'll... We're all habit, you know, we have habits. We, I love you, you know, and love you is still for me. I'm wondering if you say that, all right? Just, just saying that, that shortening it up makes me wonder, makes me worry. If you're going to say I love someone or love you or love this, say, I, I, ha, I love you with a, with a holy love. Add that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we keep coming back to some of this stuff that... Uh, continually reminds us that our view of you, our understanding of you is um, more critical maybe than we've ever thought. Would you help me? Would you help us to see in your word this incredible relationship that you have offered us with your son Jesus of a God who has our best interest at heart and a God of holy love. We need your help. Our culture, our religious training, our religious background sometimes makes this very, very difficult. We've got all kinds of tracks and grooves in our brain that make us anxious or afraid or fearful. Maybe even to, to think that you could be good. But I pray that you would help us in Jesus' strong name. Not only for our good, but for the good of the gospel, for the good of others who might see a new way. In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen.